friends, and welcome to Conversations with Consequences. We are the ladies of the Catholic Association, bringing you witty and charming in-depth conversation on the topics that matter to you with the leading thinkers and movers of our time. Conversations with Consequences is part of the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Our radio show is always a podcast, and you can listen by going to thecatholicassociation.org slash podcasts, or you can just go directly to wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, and once again, thank you very much for joining us this week. We are so happy at Conversations at the Catholic Association that you take the time to listen, and um, and we do get some feedback, and we get a lot of positive feedback, so I know that we are having, we're pleasing some people out there and pleasing some hearts, and, and uh, thank you for letting us be part of your conversations, your conversations with your families and, and your friends, because I know that all the topics that we touch upon, I hope all the topics that we touch upon are topics that you yourselves are finding interesting and topics of good conversations. This week, we have a lively show for you. We will be talking to senior staff writer Kevin Jones of the Catholic News Agency later on in the show about the Synod on Synodality. Yes, it's going on right now, and I know that uh, even just the title of it makes one's eyes glaze over, but I think it's important to uh, understand what's going on. I like to understand what's going on, and so we have Kevin to help us with that because it is a little impenetrable. Um, first, uh, my friend, my good friend at the Catholic Association, Ashley McGuire, will be joining me to talk about an interesting and really lovely sounding children's show called Bluey that she wrote a great article about. Um, but before that, even, I wanted to talk to you about something that happened in the last week or two that really shocked me and shocked a lot of people, and that is Stacey Abrams, a Democrat from uh, Georgia talking um, about fetal heartbeats being manufactured. And actually, why don't we listen to it? Uh, and you can listen to the words from her own mouth. There is no such thing as a heartbeat in six weeks. It is a manufactured sound designed to convince people that men have the right to take control of a woman's body away from her. What's unbelievable is that the secular media, the left-wing media, pretty much picked up on this and just ran with it. They liked it. It's, it's, rather, it's rather crazy because none of it makes sense. And to me, as a radiologist who does ultrasound every single day, and many of these ultrasounds are of pregnant women and their little babies, the fetal heartbeat is something that is just absolutely part of medicine. It's part of real life. Anyone who's been pregnant or has been with their pregnant wife um, or sister or friend at the OBGYNs or at the radiologist, when they put the transducer down on that uh, little belly or big belly, as it were, uh, as the case might be, what the doctor or the technician is looking for is the fetal heartbeat. We can detect the fetal heartbeat as early as five weeks after LMP, which is only three weeks after conception. So we're talking about a very, very tiny human being that already has their own distinct heartbeat. Now, there's all this discussion out there. What is a heart? What is a heart? Is it a heart at five weeks? Is it a heart at six weeks? Well, it's a rudimentary heart, and a little tiny embryonic heart is not the same as the heart of a seven-month-old fetus, which is not the same as the heart 
of a toddler, which is not the same as the heart of a grown man or an elderly man, the heart develops. And at five or six weeks, we know, uh, because uh, we know through science, through embryology, through studies of the actual little bodies, that there is a rudimentary heart, a very little heart, where blood is flowing back and forth. And this blood is something that we can image through Doppler, which is a fascinating um, kind of imaging, which started with sonar with submarines uh, many, many decades ago, and then has been applied to medicine and to the human body with tremendous results. I mean, we've so many lives have been saved and so many diseases ameliorated through the magic of ultrasound. And so with the baby, with a little tiny unborn baby, what we're looking for is the pulse of the child, which is very different from the pulse of the mother. It's much quicker. And what the machine does is that it takes this back and fro movement, back and forth movement of the blood, and it turns it into a signal that then the machine, through again the magic of sound, sound and acoustics this time, runs through a speaker and we can hear this beautiful pulsing beat that we turn up for the delight of mom and dad and all the aunts and cousins that have come along for this great moment, which is the moment of hearing the life of the baby for the very first time. It's a beautiful moment. For me, it never gets old, no matter how many times it happens. I know all of you out there who've experienced this with your own children, with your spouse's child, with your grandchild or your, your niece or nephew, you know that it's a moment that simply lives on in your life forever, that, that, that moment when you know that, yes, that baby is there, the baby is alive, and that beautiful beat fills the room, which is the beat of life, the beat of the beautiful force that is this new child with a new future and his own or her own distinct destiny. Welcome to the show, Ashley. Hey, Gracie. I always love chatting with you. Oh, well, good. I hope our listeners like listening to our chats. I do think that we <laughs> touch upon a lot of interesting things and things that are interesting to everyone, not just us in our own little particular worlds. And um, one of these, th I was just talking uh, about uh, Stacey Abrams' um, crazy statement about manufactured sounds and how heartbeats, fetal heartbeats are manufactured sounds uh, made to oppress women and and everybody can see through all that, um, but I know you also wrote about it, and um, and and there's a lot of good points to be made about how the the left and the pro-choice left is trying to to turn. They're really turning on all the guns. They're bringing out all the artillery, and one of their pieces of artillery is that the fetal heartbeat is not a thing. It doesn't indicate life. It doesn't indicate personhood, and that really goes against everything. That we experience, which is that 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 awe and amazement when we hear the sound of a new human being. I mean, call it what you want. Call it um, vibrations or blood flow or uh, pre preform preformed heart structures. Or I've seen so many variations of this, but it, it is an amazing sign of something fabulous happening that is just that just blows your socks off every time you hear it. Yeah, you know, Beyonce actually either wrote this into a song or, or talked about her first ultrasound. And she said the heartbeat was the most beautiful sound she had ever heard. You know, and this is one of the most accomplished musicians. So uh, to your point, call it what you may. 
but we all know that it is a beautiful indicator of life. I, I look at ultrasounds every day for uh, in my day job, and every time that this uh, I see a little human being, I it 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 just it causes me to it just stops me in my tracks for a moment because it's such a it's it's a thing that you don't get used to. The, the, mm. the fact that there is this new miraculous person who is full of potential and hope and, and all the joys of the family are riding on this, on this new little tiny, uh, so tiny uh, little person with a beating heart. And it just stops you over and over again. I, I, want, I want people to know that, that even the people who do this every day never get tired of the awe and the amazement. And, you know, just speaking of the, the potential um, my son is a huge baseball fan. And this week, Aaron judge broke the record for home runs. And it was so beautiful because <clears throat> he's adopted and oh, I'm going to cry. <laughs> Adoption does that to me too. <laughs> so there's always these big scrambles over these balls that are, you know, record breaking balls. And for some reason, his ball wound up in the, um, dugout of the other team and they returned the ball to him and he gave it to his adopted mother. But I was driving this morning thinking, you know, he was, you know, he was a little teeny tiny person like that in the womb too. And it's like, each one of us has such extraordinary potential and, you know, we're not all going to be breaking, you know, Babe Ruth's home run record, but it's, it's a reminder of, you know, this is what you're taking away, not just a life, but, you know, all the inspiration that he gives to others and, and the wonder that he brought to his adopted parents and, and the affirmation to his heroic birth mother who chose life for him. I, I, I get, I take a little umbrage sometimes when people say, well, you sh that, that baby, you can't abort that baby because she could grow up to cure cancer. And I think she doesn't have to cure cancer right. to be valuable. No, All she true. has to do is be a child of God, which she already is. And she will bring so much joy and goodness to this world just by her, the virtue of her existence. I'm feeling that a lot recently because my father's very ill with ALS. And my father and mother happen to have lots of children and lots of grandchildren. And each one of those people in my parents' life is a, a huge source of comfort, consolation, um, joy. I mean, that's really all that they think about anymore is those connections with these all of us who love them very much. And, and we do so many things for them that they can't do for themselves. And I can't imagine disdaining those beautiful connections that you have with your children and the, and the way they're going to give your grandchildren probably. And just, you know, focusing only on the here and now and the pleasure you might be denying yourself or the, the material things you might be denying yourself by, by opening yourself to life and accepting a life sometimes that's already formed. It's already there that the, you're mm -hmm. then rejecting Bill McGurn, who's one of my favorite people, but also one of my favorite columnists in the, in the wall street journal on the 3rd of October, he, he wrote a really great piece that, I, that really struck a note with me. It's called, Capitalism Says the More Population, the Merrier. And so the occasion of this piece is that the 8th billion baby is being born in this month, according to people who keep track of populations. And he talks about that that's something that's a cause to celebrate. And, and one of the big problems of our, of our current culture is that the antinatalism that sees every human being as a liability and a consumer 
and a polluter of the of the of the oceans <laughs> is um, it is a terrible way to to view the the beautiful potential of each human being who comes with so much just comes with so much to give the world and and his or her family yeah you know you're reminding me of a column by tim carney he's the executive or the editor-in-chief of the washington examiner he wrote this really great column it was probably 10 years ago at this point but i've never forgotten it where he pushed back on the argument you know the kind of environmentalist arguments for population control and he's you know he had this great kicker that said something like the value of each human life is positive like it's not a zero sum game mm-hmm. and he also made the point that many of the are, are the things that are social ills or our troubles including you know the legitimate con- environmental concerns mm-hmm. are going to be solved by people being born mm-hmm. um and he gave the example of you know steve jobs another person who was famously adopted and just how you know transformative he was um but you know there was also um a wonderful article also in the wall street journal that i read this weekend that i would encourage our our listeners to to read it's um about a woman who has autism uh temple grandin and she um struggled with autism all her life but went on to found this um animal institute at the university of colorado but the point of, I love the title of the article. It's Temple Grandin wants all types of minds to contribute to society. The autism advocate believes diagnostic labels shouldn't stop young people from cultivating their talents. But that's and beautiful. I think, you know, she talks about now how there's so much fearfulness and, and coddling of children, especially children with special needs, that many of them are being kind of put into these boxes of special needs. You know, you're over here. You shouldn't be allowed to, you know, um, go to the supermarket by yourself because you might, you know, something might happen. And well, like only, only that idea that only very, very normal uh, people can really integrate into society. That there's no room in society for uh, differences, differences of ability, and differences of of engaging with the world on a social level, like uh, autistic people have. Right. And, and her argument is that not only does that stunt the personal growth of people with special needs, but it, it detracts from society. And she, she attributes her empathy and understanding of animals and animal life and animal culture for having a mind that just thinks differently and and communicates in a visual way, which apparently that's how animals um, learn and process thing, obviously, because they don't read. Um, and so it was just a fascinating article and such a, a positive reminder of um, the way all of us have something unique, big or small, um, to but it, but essential to contribute um, to our culture and our society. And and actually, the 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 acceptance of children of all stripes, uh, children with all different sorts of needs or abilities, uh, children who are not necessarily wanted or loved right from the beginning. So the, the radical acceptance of children as, as element, as, as positive value added adders to the world, right? They're, they're going to bring good value to the world, no matter how they are, who they are and who loves them or who doesn't love them right at the start. Um, a lot of, a lot of that, that beautiful uh, acceptance of children, all children um, is reflected 
can be reflected in the way the kind of content that then we that we see that that people give them from Hollywood from from TV from music um, and and sometimes that's that's really lacking in our world uh, we're not making we're not letting children be children <laughs> we uh, we see more and more in in media this um, this lack of respect for that for that the innocence of children the purity of children the fact that they only have a few years on this earth to to see the world um, as an as a as an essentially uncomplicated place or at least that we should present the world to them as much as possible like that to them and not you know let them see sort of the seamy underside of things until that their until their minds are prepared <laughs> And and I bring all this up, and maybe it's a it's a tough segue, because you wrote a really great piece about a show called Bluey, and it reminded me a lot of all the, the many many years that I spent. I, my children were sort of spread out, and I spent a lot of time watching children's uh, programming, and it was very difficult um, to find exactly the right shows because it you know cartoons are wonderful. I like cartoons still to this day, but you wanted you wanted cartoons. Um, to express, to, to form your children too, in a sense, right? To form them in the virtues and to leave their innocence intact. And, and I haven't been watching cartoons in the last few years, so I'm wondering if that's getting harder. And tell us about Bluey and what, what the show uh, sparked in you. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, first of all, I think it's important to remember that, you know, adults too, but children, um, when they're consuming media, it's not a net neutral. It's either forming your mind in a good way or forming your mind in a not good way. But it's always um, forming. Absolutely. It's always forming. We're not passive receivers of information. And also, let's be honest, we know this very well, and we've talked about this on the program, uh, is that the people who are uh, behind the scenes in you know, the places producing this content, they're not neutral actors either. It's a sad but true reality. I often so, wonder, I often wonder if any of them have children because I see this, um, their attitudes seem to me completely disconnected from the normal attitudes of people who are trying to raise their children in clean and decent ways so that their children grow up to be flourishing human adults. Well, I think, you know, it's, it's sort of a, a small group of elites, if you will. And I'm not sure that they always have even their own children's interests. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, these were the people driving the school lockdowns. They mm -hmm. were behind it. And I often marveled at the fact that, you know, one, 18 months into the pandemic, these people uh, who had the power to open the schools back up didn't. They, they complied and, and forced their kids onto the computers. Anyways, we're digressing. But it is. It's really hard to find... Um, content for children that is not just clean, you mm -hmm. know, clean of, you know, foul language, clean of sexual stuff, um, but that is also devoid of woke content. Mm -hmm. um, and that actually has messages that, you know, make it a good use of your child's time. I mean, I, you know, we're both busy moms, totally understand you know, people need to turn on the TV to have sanity, but you know, in an ideal world, you know, your kids are still being formed in a positive. My way. husband, anyways, my husband and I used to celebrate the moment when the youngest baby 
could turn on the TV. Well, I would turn on the we would turn on the TV, and the youngest baby would actually focus on it. We're like, yes, oh yeah, yeah, the yeah, moment I'm, has come. <laughs> I'm just cruising into that with my youngest with Mickey Mouse Clubhouse. Like he will actually. We watch. sound like very bad moms. Sorry. <laughs> But no, but this show Bluey is such a gem. And I wrote a piece about it for the Institute for Family Studies because um, I, my kids just watch it over and over again. And they would always be laughing, all of them. And one thing, another challenge is finding content for kids that all your kids like. And I'm kind of a believer that like kids should be watching TV together with their siblings and not be like siphoned off in different corners. Absolutely. And so my oldest is 10 and she loves Bluey just as much as my 20 month old, you know, they're all laughing. And so I started watching the show. And the thing that struck me about this show that makes it such a gem is a, the kind of idyllic portrayal of the nuclear family, but also the, it it portrays family life as a positive good while also portraying it in a realistic way. There's so many little vignettes and scenes that every parent and child can relate to. Um, But its message is ultimately that family life is good, that parents are the authority, that marriage should look to children as a loving, playful, happy relationship, but also, you know, and also loving and playful with the children, but also, um, you know, retaining that position of, of authority in the home and not being figures that are mocked and derided as is the case in so many of Mm -hmm. these Disney shows where it's like dumb old dad or, you know, ditzy mom. Um, Let me ask you, Ashley, you said something about uh, the ideal family. And one thing that gets worse and worse every year, it seems to me is that ideal families are no longer, uh, are very, are very often no, no longer portrayed. And the idea, I think the idea behind that is that, well, so many children don't have ideal families and that the children should be seeing the reality that they're experiencing reflected back on the screen to them. And I have a problem with that because if you don't imagine that you are growing up in a neighborhood where none of the children have fathers in the home, that there are many neighborhoods like that. Or maybe if there's a hundred families, 10 of them have fathers in the home. They don't even know that that's a possibility. They have not seen that in action. So where is the balance between reflecting uh, the child's reality back, but also giving them an ideal that they can understand does exist and can be reached? I don't know, but I have to say that I'm really pivoting towards only showing my kids content that portrays ideals or things Uh to strive for. And that's not just the family. I mean, I'll give you another example. We have, you know, we try to do a family movie night every Friday. Um, The content that's being produced now is often, I just, I won't watch it with them. And so we've started going back to these old classics, some of which you'd think, oh my gosh, um, you know, a five-year-old is not going to want to watch the movie Ben-Hur, which is a (laughs) four-hour movie about, you know, chariot racing and ancient Rome. And we... And, and because it's not a cartoon, that's another thing is there's we've gotten a little bit stuck in this idea that kids will only watch animated content, especially under a certain age. But I'm finding that the movies that my kids most enjoy um, and then most want to continue talking about are some of these great classics that portray ideals and themes and virtues like friendship and honor and. Um, 
and kindness but, towards But then others. in each of these movies, the conflict comes from the fact that the one of these virtues, one of these ideals is being betrayed, correct? I mean, right. the people in these good shows, in these good movies that, that, we've, that we prefer, they are flawed people. They, yeah. they make mistakes and they betray the ideal, but the ideal remains the ideal. And maybe yeah. that's the difference between, yeah. right? Is, well, is there an ideal that we should aim for? Or are we all just going to bumble around and, and make messes of our lives with nothing to aim for? Right. Well, and going back to Bluey, that's what I like about the show is that it shows the parents' flaws. It shows, it's not, um, it's not necessarily like rosy-eyed or a naive portrayal of family mm-hmm. life. It's a very honest portrayal of family life, but still lifting up and drawing out with these little lessons in each episode, the things that we should be striving for and showing, I think, how the home and the family is often the place where we best learn those lessons. In fact, it reminds me of, you know, um, a, a message that Pope Francis has said many times over and over again, which is the family is the first place where we learn to live with and get along with people despite our differences mm-hmm. and that um that's you know such an invaluable part of human formation is is your experience in the family and so that's why i i loved the show and wanted to make a plug for it a because it's worth lifting up at because of that but b because i know how hard it is for parents to find content that um is is good in that way and i wonder i haven't seen bluey uh, but I wonder, Ashley, if the father, because I've I've noticed this very much, is the father portrayed as as a as a competent, uh, self sacrificial leader of the family, which I find is very often not the case. Yeah, no, and I I talk about that in my article that you know there there was an actual study done um, at a university that found. Um, that measured the uh, amount of times that fathers are portrayed badly. And, and Bluey, I think portrays the dad as a, as a competent, loving, as a, as a good father figure. And that's sorely needed. Ashley, where can people read your article on Bluey? Um, They can find it at the Institute for Family Studies website. um, And you can also go over to their social media Facebook and Twitter pages and find it there. Well, thank you, Ashley, for joining me today. I think uh, we talked about some important things. A good conversation. I hope our listeners enjoyed it too. Thanks, Gracie. Every morning, the Catholic Association reviews all the latest news and sends our subscribers a carefully curated collection of the most important news of the day. Items are specifically selected for a smart Catholic audience like you. Don't let the world take you by surprise. Subscribe to our daily media roundup at thecatholicassociation.org. with Consequences. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie. We will be talking to senior staff writer Kevin Jones of the Catholic News Agency. Welcome to the show, Kevin. Great to be here. Thank you for taking time for us. I I know that you know so much about the topic, and we're hoping that you can illuminate us. Yes, well, this uh, Synod gathering is uh, quite a time for, for some people. Plenty of Catholics are coming together 
to uh, talk about their faith, how they experience the church. And uh, a lot of uh, chatter keeps happening, and sometimes controversies even. Mm -hmm. And we want to get to the controversies, but first, what is the big, give us a big picture assessment of what the church is hoping to accomplish with this synod, and what kind of real world um, uh, practical changes might we see in the church as a result of the synod? Well, let's see. I think the first uh, aim is simply to be a listening ear, to get a real sense of uh, what people think and what is going on, and uh, also to help people understand uh, that people want to listen, that people in the church want to listen and want to uh, want to hear them. Uh, it's a uh, two-way process. Mm-hmm. So, so the first, you think the first uh, purpose is to for the church to present herself as a receptive audience, uh, not just someone who dispenses things, but also receives. I think that is a major part of it, yes. Mm-hmm. Okay, and then what could, what material changes could happen? Um, and I know I'm asking, this is a very speculative question, but just to understand the synod better, because what most people understand about synods is that they are momentous occasions when the whole church comes together, uh, or the bishops all come together, and, and make, you know, pretty important um, th- decisions that can impact the life of everyone who sits in Catholic pews. Yes, well, that is uh, certainly one view. Uh, at the same time, the Synod of Bishops uh, meet, has been meeting continually on and off for, uh, for decades. And there have, uh, what changes, if there have been any, are unclear to me personally. Oh, okay. Well, then I'm wrong. That's, and maybe that's, uh, that maybe that's good, that's uh, reassuring. <laughs> <laughs> That not necessarily we're not necessarily expecting great sea changes, just because this synod on synodality is being held. I do think, however, that a real change at the local level could really advance a uh, a listening church, as Pope Francis calls it, a continual habit of uh, reaching out and going out to the community, whether it's practicing Catholics, fallen away Catholics, or even random community members who just might be curious. When you when you talk about the church listening, um, many people, me included. Uh, we get this sense. There's, I feel like there's. A, I feel a natural. Um, I feel a natural opposition to this idea in the sense that I find that the world right now is not necessarily in in a position to give a lot of good advice to the church. In a sense, because the world has gone so far off the rails, and the church, on the other hand, seems. I understand the church to be the repository of truth. So I wonder if other people have that same reaction to the synod. Well, I do think uh, some people are are seeing that. I mean, they do worry that uh, it will simply uh, be an echo chamber for the broader culture mm-hmm. rather than uh, something that that brings uh, brings wisdom and uh, an insight to the church. Um, at the same time, uh, there is a hope that just by getting people together face to face, disconnecting them from uh, social media, from television, uh, and getting them in a face-to-face situation, uh, that more progress and actual real dialogue can happen. Mm-hmm. So opening the church up to real encounters with real people who are experiencing the world and the time that we live in, uh, in very real ways, right? And then allowing the church to to hear those experiences so that they can respond. Mm-hmm. Is that Does that make sense? Yes, yes. 
But where, where do, what are these occasions of listening? Because all I've seen so far is the written surveys. What is there a listening um, section that's coming up in the next year? Uh, well, it is my understanding that m- many of the listening sessions have already taken place and that those reports are derived from those sessions. Hmm. Okay. In my own area, unless I missed it and it was announced, I, I didn't... Um I didn't see that. <laughs> I, I saw the surveys, yes. but I didn't see that there was an opportunity to go and air one's actual uh, face-to-face um, interaction. Yes, and it can depend on diocese by diocese. Right now, uh, the uh, Synod of Bishops, uh, based on the Vatican, is assembling the results of the first round of listening sessions. Now, there may be uh, more rounds forthcoming. Uh, I am not entirely sure on the forthcoming clubs myself, but... Um, the first uh, round, uh, so to speak, has already uh, has already taken place, and the bishops were uh, meeting uh, to uh, try and sort things through and prepare a report on what's going on so far. Now, not to jump so fast to controversy, uh, I, I mentioned earlier when I was introducing this segment that uh, the synod has taken what I feel is a dark turn in places like Germany, where the people in the pews and, and and the priests and the bishops or some number of them seem to be advancing ideas and opinions that don't uh, don't jive with uh, Catholicism like women priests for instance what is happening over there and how is the synod enabling this or facilitating it or how can the synod deal with this the uh, the German bishops have their own idea of uh, what's going on they have uh, what's called a synodal path. And they and their lay collaborators, many of them, are certainly uh, pushing to try and change longstanding church doctrine. But you can also see some uh, some deep regrets and some pushbacks from uh, Pope Francis and the Vatican, often in these uh, subtle diplomatic ways. Uh, but it is a big source of tension between Germany and the Vatican right now. So you do see Germany pushing, but the Vatican pushing back. Can you give us an example of how the Vatican pushes back? I think one trouble is that uh, the, the Pope Francis papacy does very much behind the scenes. Mm. Uh, but obviously the, the church initially, when the uh, German bishops uh, submitted a question, or actually someone from Germany submitted a question to the Vatican on whether the church can bless same-sex couples, the answer from the Congregation of Doctrine of the Faith, which signed by Pope Francis, uh, said, no, the church cannot bless these these matters. So that was a very clear attempt at correction, but uh, since receptivity has to be a two-way street, and it does not seem that uh, the German bishops are open to uh, church teaching on this subject, and it's uh, an unfortunate trend in German Catholicism. Well, that's very reassuring that that the Vatican pushed back on that decisively. I'm I'm surprised to say that I would have to be reassured on such a topic, but <laughs> but I am reassured, and and I and I think our listeners will be reassured too. There have been some things, some images um, that have been floating around on social media, which I found very disturbing. I'm on social media, but I didn't even reproduce them because I think that they would. I didn't retweet them or anything like that because I felt they disturbed me, and I don't want other Catholics being disturbed. People who are faithful to the church, um, but I, I I don't mind mentioning it here. Some synodal. Uh, Instagram account, has these images that uh, one was particularly sort of egregious, is a woman wearing the vestments of a priest, and there's a man next to her with um, a banner that says pride in rainbow colors. (laughs) Yes. And there's a microphone. 
there's a microphone and there's a there's a quote says we are the young people of the future and the future is now and it's um, it's a it's subtitled chain of discipleship and yes again i didn't reproduce it because it made me cringe and it made me really sad for the church <laughs> and really scared but you tell us if you know about this image and where it came from and what it means Yes, yes. Well, the uh, the imagery was reproduced on the social media of the official Synod of Bishops uh, Facebook and Instagram page. Yes. So that caused quite a bit of concern and controversy. Uh, the images themselves de- uh, derive from uh, Philadelphia. There was a gathering of uh, Catholic higher education uh, students, whether at Catholic universities or at their uh, Catholic Newman centers at non-Catholic uh, schools. Mm-hmm. And the organizers of that synodal gathering decided to commission artwork to help summarize uh, the events and the uh, spirit of uh, the, those discussions. So what we have here is uh, an attempt to represent, uh, as the artist sees it, the content of the discussions. And you have uh, certainly uh, somebody uh, running the uh, face- Facebook media uh, who thought that those images collectively were appealing. And some of them were uh, reflected uh, views that were very much intention or even contradiction mm-hmm. to Catholic practice, such as the women priests. Uh, some of them uh, were not. I mean, some of them uh, tried to depict the church as uh, weaving together all identities or as uh, incorporating everyone, which uh, in one sense is true. The church does aim to incorporate everyone, whether it can uh, incorporate everyone in the sense that uh, Philadelphia college students uh, want it to want it to happen is another question. There are various uh, criticisms that can be made of that. Mm-hmm. Well, and and as a as a piece of artwork that um, illustrates the the minds of the people who are participating in the synod, it is very valuable. Because when I talk to young people, young Catholics, they've many of them are pro-life. They they've they've been taught the value of human life from conception, uh, but many of them have not understood the the truth of the human person's sexuality as oriented to the other sex, <laughs> and and how that is uh, that's instilled in us by our by our nature, by by God, by by our biology. And um, it's true that young people are not getting that. that that's my experience. Um, and mm-hmm. hopefully other, peop- other young Catholics in the rest of the world are getting it. But uh, my experience has been rather dark on that, on that score. Um, good, you know, good young people who, who have good feelings and want to, to be kind to everyone simply are not being taught why sexuality um, is meant to be between a man and his wife and not yeah. any other mm-hmm. iteration. <laughs> so yes, in that sense, certainly. in that sense the the image is appropriate. It's appropriate in the sense that it's it's showing what people are thinking and that's the whole point of the synod, correct? Um, yes, certainly, certainly. Uh, the and the local organizers told me that uh, the the guidelines for the process uh, say the point is to bring together with different experiences and perceptions just so you can meet and listen. And maybe then those perceptions will become, uh, they told me, quote, more realistic and less based on broader cultural or political narratives, unquote. So, uh, and, that, whether... and, that's, and that makes a lot of sense. And that's what we would like to see, right? I mean, if, if the church pretends that young ch- that children are growing up Catholic and understanding married love, 
then they're pretending something that's wrong, that's not actually happening in probably a huge percentage of cases. Yes, certainly, certainly. Uh, but there, uh, and uh, the whole question of how to handle this, uh, this synodal process uh, of representing what is going on on the ground uh, versus, versus trying to be a clear church that knows its teaching and, and uh, knows at, at the same time knows how to reach out and proclaim that. Uh, that's, that's a serious uh, phenomenon going on. Mm-hmm. And when you have the, an image like that coming out of the Vatican homepage of, inter- of Instagram and Facebook, coupled with what's going on in Germany, for instance, asking for same-sex uh, unions to be blessed— in the church, that that becomes very terrifying, right? For your average Catholic who's hoping that the church will hang on to those vital truths about the human person. Yes, that is uh, certainly the case in the American context. Now, uh, we always have to wonder uh, because uh, the church is dealing with a massive, uh, I mean, a global church. Whether uh, whether those concerns are known very well uh, mm-hmm. among the uh, synod of bishops leading leaders, uh, whether or among simply the people who run their, their social media, and uh, whether they, they know how to deal it ac- with accuracy. I mean, uh, dialogue does have to be a two-way street, and uh, those of us who have concerns about this uh, might want to ask, you know, hey, uh, please, uh, Senator Bishop's social media person, uh, please understand where we're coming from. Uh, even uh, despite all the possible grumpiness, uh, I mean, many... Uh, Many uh, criticisms uh, on social media resulted, uh, some of which were certainly out of line, I'm sure. But there also needs to be uh, a consciousness. And I think Catholics who are concerned about confusion in the Church have a right to uh, speak up. And indeed, we saw uh, a few people do that, a few students do that at the Philadelphia Synod. Mm-hmm. And, and you, uh, you mentioned the global Church. I mean, this is the, the Church is a big, big... Um, body of Christ, that, which spans the whole world and and beyond, and people in Africa um, are not going to have the. They have completely different concerns, and they're certainly not interested in. In I'm, I'm sure, as a group, in uh, women priests and mm-hmm. and pride banners. Yes. So what is that? What does that say when when somebody when the Catholics in Africa are looking at the at the internet at the Instagram page coming out of the that seems like a very strange uh, preoccupation that would only be a, a very uh, progressive Western preoccupation? Um, yes, I think it can be. You can, that's certainly uh, an understandable approach. Um, and I would, uh, I would just, I would love to uh, have the ear of the uh, Synod of Bishops person and see how, what they really think about Americans and our concerns, whether they are uh, the American Catholics who are curious about uh, the ordination of women, which uh, both uh, St. John Paul II and Pope Francis would say is not going to happen. It's impossible. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there are other other impressions in uh, in uh, among uh, the uh, the staff of the uh, Synod of Bishops. And just trying to figure out what's really going on is, um, it's always a process of translation and understanding. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and sometimes confusion. Uh, and concern, which is, uh, it's it's just uh, one of the uh, facets of uh, contemporary life. Anything can go on the internet very easily. That's right. So one person who posts one picture in the in in one very uh, broad um, 
broadly uh, accessed uh, space, like this this person, whoever posted this picture, um, suddenly commands the conversation, and probably you know that's out of proportion to to what is really happening on the ground, right? Um, it can be. It can certainly be. It is. Uh, we will have to see uh, if whether the uh, final reports, uh, both uh, the U.S. and from uh, from globally at the Vatican. Uh, are able to give a, uh, a good impression of what is going on or whether they will be representative and accurate. Uh, and so that's uh, stories to come, perhaps. Mm-hmm. And so, Kevin, we're out of time, but where can our listeners uh, read your stories on the Synod and other work? Uh, well, I am a journalist with Catholic News Agency. We get uh, syndicated in the National Catholic Register, among other areas. Uh, my Our website is catholicnewsagency.com. And my name is Kevin Jones. Uh, Later today, we should be uh, running another follow-up story on this artwork. So I'm happy to see that that is on the way. So please watch that space. Well, thank you very much for joining us, Kevin. Thank you. Great to be here. And now, Father Roger Landry offers us, as is customary, a short and inspiring homily to prepare us for this Sunday's Gospel. This is Father Roger Landry, and it's a joy for me to be with you. As we enter into the consequential conversation the risen Lord Jesus wants to have with each of us this Sunday, when we will not only witness the Lord's power to heal people of the dreadful disease of leprosy, but the larger point of how we're supposed to respond when the Lord gives us an incredible gift like that. Ten lepers approached Jesus. He would cure all ten of a disease that had been eating away their flesh and bones, that had made them stink worse than skunks, that had made them outcasts and forced them to stay at least 50 feet away from any non-leper and to cry out, unclean, unclean, anytime someone was approaching cut them off from their family members, cut them off from the communal worship of God as they could never go to the synagogue on Saturday or to the temple on the major holy days. But at their insistent, even courageous cry for mercy, Jesus healed them all and sent them to the priests, which is the means set up in the Mosaic law to verify that the disease had stopped growing and that they were no longer contagious. The text of St. Luke indicates that as they were heading to the priest, walking with faith, they were completely cured. They no longer had their leprous sores. Their bodies had been made whole again. After recognizing that the miracle for which they had prayed and longed for had been granted, we would have expected that all of them would have hightailed it back to Jesus, almost as if they had been raised from the dead. But only one of the ten returned to thank the Lord, who had given them this gift. Genius, Jesus pointedly asks, Ten were cleansed, weren't they? Where are the other nine? Jesus wished them all to return, not because he had worked the miracle with impure motives to get them to thank him, but so that he might give them an even greater gift than than their stupendous physical cure. He wanted to give them all what he had given the Samaritan who returned, the grace of salvation by faith. After the healed man fell down at his feet to thank him with all his heart, Jesus told him, stand up and go. Your faith has saved you. This is a key point. Jesus came into the world not fundamentally to heal our bodies, but to restore our soul. came not to remedy our ills, but redeem our life. In order to receive these greater gifts, however, we need gratefully to be in relationship with him. When all ten men were cured of their physical leprosy, nine retained a form of leprosy of the soul, and in gratitude that took for granted the greatest gift they had received in life until then, that kept them distant from Jesus. Only the grateful leper would receive the gift of salvation because only he had a heart that was open to receive it. The other nine didn't, and Jesus made note of it, saying, Has none but this foreigner returned to give thanks to God? The other nine lepers were presumably Jews, and Jesus was implying that it was shocking 
that only the Samaritan returned because the Jews had been trained by God for centuries in the prayers of the Psalms and the incredible events of salvation history to give thanks to the Lord for his good, for his mercy endures forever. If anyone should have learned how to say thanks to God, it should have been the Jews. But many of them took God's generosity, God's goodness for granted. I've always thought that the nine who didn't return likely looked at their disease with anger toward God, as if he had somehow sadistically chosen for unjust punishment them, such that when they were cured, they looked at it the way people might view getting released from an unkind kidnapper. They would be grateful for the liberation, but they likely wouldn't send a thank you note to the one who had held them in captivity. But the Samaritan, even though his body had been disintegrating, his soul hadn't been destroyed by the leprosy of bitterness, complaint, cursing, or ingratitude. His fundamental relationship with God was still there. He likely thanked God for all the little things he had received from his hands, like the generosity of people who would provide food or give a kind word of compassion. When he had received the big grace of his cure, he did what he probably always did and immediately sought to thank the giver. He likely grew to thank God even for his years of leprosy, because if he hadn't been a leper, he may never have encountered Jesus the way he did and never would have received the gift of salvation by faith. It's important for us as Christians to focus on gratitude. We've been blessed with gifts of faith through Jesus far greater than the Jews ever received. But do we readily thank God for his gifts and through through that gratitude open ourselves up even more profoundly to a life-changing relationship with the divine giver? Do we behave like the other nine lepers? Couldn't Jesus say, where are the other nine with regard to the gift of our baptism? Since so few of us really thank him for the most important day of our life. Couldn't Jesus query, where are the other nine with regard to Sunday Mass? Since six out of seven Catholics don't come on Sunday when we must, and so many more don't come during the week when we could but choose not to. Couldn't he ask, where are the other nine with respect to the sacrament of his mercy that restores us to the way of salvation? Because so many never or seldom come, even to confess ingratitude. Couldn't Jesus wonder, where are the other nine about sacred scripture? which bathes us in the cleansing, saving power of his word, because so few ever take up the Bible to read it and hear God's voice. Many Catholics are known far more among their family members and friends for complaining than for gratitude. Some would complain about the menu of the Last Supper and regularly behave as if the glass is never full, the beach is too sunny, the water is too wet. When they're asked about a movie, a book, or an article, they start with the part they didn't like rather than the many parts they found great. When asked about how they're doing, they moan about a slight toothache rather than express gratitude that their eyes, their ears, their nose, and every joint of their body is without pain. Many of us similarly grumble about what we don't have rather than rejoice with appreciation what we do. That's why this Sunday's readings are so important. At every Mass, one of the most important dialogues in human life occurs. The priest says, let us give thanks to the Lord our God, and everyone responds, it is right and just. Then the priest replies with a saying of great theological depth. It is truly right and just, our duty and our salvation, always and everywhere, to give you thanks, Lord, Holy Father, almighty and ever-living God. It's right, it's just, it's fitting, it's appropriate for us to give thanks always and everywhere to God. It's right, just, fitting and appropriate for us to do so on sunny days and rainy days, on days we feel like a million bucks and days we're in the hospital. On days when we're attending weddings and those we're attending funerals of loved ones. On days when we get promotions and bonuses at work. and days we get pink slips. On days we win and on days we lose. 
It's right and just to thank God always and everywhere. It's our duty to thank God because he has directly willed or permitted everything that has happened to us, both what the world considers good and what the world considers bad. Because even out of the bad, like leprosy in this Sunday's gospel, he seeks to draw spiritual good for everything works out for the good for those who love God. Every Mass we're called to grow in the spirit of thanksgiving because the Eucharist is Jesus' own prayer of thanksgiving to the Father. The Greek word from which we derive the word Eucharist means thanksgiving. St. John Henry Newman, whose feast day the church remembers this Sunday, wrote in some homiletic notes that gratitude is a kind of love. In the Eucharist, we express our love for God, who himself loved us so much that he gave his life so that we might have it to the full. It's always stopped me in my tracks that right before Jesus said the words of consecration on the night he would betray, be betrayed, on the vigil of his crucifixion, he took bread and as we'll hear anew this Sunday, gave thanks. He gave thanks on the vigil of his betrayal because it is right always and everywhere a duty in our salvation to do so. He gave thanks because he was constantly thanking the Father. He gave thanks because he knew the Father would bring the greatest good out of the greatest evil of all time would happen to him after mass was done he gave thanks because it would be through his passion death and resurrection that jesus would institute the means by which we would be able to enter into his own relationship with the father the mass is the great school in which we participate in jesus own thanksgiving the thanksgiving the church makes continuously from the rising of the sun to its setting the lord has done far more for us than he ever did for the ten lepers at mass he gives us in a concrete way even more than what he gave the one grateful leper when he said, your faith has saved you. The Mass is where Jesus gives himself to us as salvation in the flesh. No matter what hardships we're enduring, no matter what problems we're facing, no matter what illnesses we're bearing, God comes into our world to accompany us, to strengthen us, to heal us, to help us. He comes down to save us. And so in response to that love, we say the only thing worthy of such incredible generosity. Thanks be to God. Deo gracias. God bless you. Thank you, Father Landry. To hear more from Father Landry, check out his website at catholicpreaching.com and you can also catch his writings at EWTN's own National Catholic Register. A big thank you to all our listeners for joining us. I hope that this show was helpful. I hope that it gave you more peace and more hope and more joy and you go with our prayers. 